Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, coming to you from London, connected by our lord and master, the internet, with my treasure of a co-host, Carrie Plitt, who's joining me from Oxford. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? Hello, dear Octavia. It's very nice to see your face over the internet. How am I doing? I hadn't thought about this. I have no idea how I'm doing. (laughs) I really don't know. I'm very happy to be here with you. Otherwise, who knows? Let's just keep it. minute by minute. How are you doing? Same, really. I mean, yeah, minute to minute. But this minute right now, very pleased to see you. And also kind of baffled by the fact that this is our last show before we take our summer break in August. And I cannot believe we've got around here so fast. It feels like a year since we were last in the studio before COVID made us be homeschool recorders, which was our show with Kylie Reid. And that was actually only a few months ago. I haven't seen you in real life for five months, basically. That might be the longest. We've gone for years. Years and years. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah. Because we, we see each other once a month at least. At least, yeah. Wow. What a thought. Anyway, it's crazy. So yeah, we're going to be taking a summer break and we wanted to leave you with a joyful mini-sode. So the theme of this mini-sode is going to be joy. It is. And we're joyously joyful about this (laughs) (laughs) joy-themed We are brimming over with it. We are. No, we are though. We are. We are. As ever, please bear with us on the sound quality front. We're not quite in our closets, but it's all pretty makeshift and some rowdy seagulls have taken up residence on Octavia's roof and routinely dive bomb the fox that lives at the end of next door's garden. Not a joke. Definitely not a joke. Very, very noisy. The traffic has resumed on the street next to my house. So you may hear a couple of cars trying to um, get past the traffic lights on the next street, which Sheila, our neighbor, is very angry about. But she's been fighting it for years and the council will do nothing. (laughs) That famous Oxford gridlock. (laughs) But whether you're new to the show or an old hand, welcome. Thanks for tuning in. The format for these mini-sodes between full shows is, for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about something book-related and anything else that might come up. And as Octavia mentioned, we'll be talking about joy. And then recommend some other cultural things that we've enjoyed lately with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. That's right. So we, the reason we wanted to talk about joy is because, frankly, we miss it. And we've really felt the lack of it um, lately and the need for it. And as the world continues to turn upside down, we're learning how to find it in new ways. I think you'd agree, right, Carrie? We're having to look in really unusual places sometimes to find it. But I think really the best thing about joy is that once you have a little bit of it, you can find ways to pass it on. And then that brings even more joy because whoever you pass it on to can bring a little bit more to somebody else. And it can really be like a paper chain of joy spreading out across communities, both virtual and real. And that feels like one of the most necessary uses of our time and emotional energy at the moment when we're faced with so much relentless, relentless What is the opposite of joy? Depression, misery, negativity, sadness. Sadness. There we go. She's smart, this one. (laughs) So today we're going to get into what brings us joy. We're going to talk about books a bit. (laughs) What we're hoping is we'll spread a little bit of that joy to you. And and as Carrie said, we'll give you some recommendations of things we've been into lately at the end. So 
thinking about joy as being something that is profoundly generative and thinking that talking about joy can create more joy and witnessing joy can create more joy. I want to hear about what is bringing you joy right now, Carrie Plitt. Hit me with that joy. (laughs) (laughs) I'll see what I can do. Well, I was thinking about this question and the first thing that I wanted to do, of course, was define what I thought joy was. Girl loves a definition. You love a definition, (laughs) like parameters. Obviously, I return to one of my favorite essays of all time by Zadie Smith, which is also called Joy. I have talked about it a million times on the show before, but if you have not read it, it's quite short. It's absolutely brilliant. You can look it up online. It was originally in the New York Review of Books. And in this essay, she actually distinguishes between pleasure and joy. She calls joy that strange admixture of terror, pain, and delight, which is something that one doesn't necessarily want to remember. Um, She says that each time she's experienced joy, and she says she's only experienced joy like five times in her life, she's tried to forget it soon after it happened out of the fear that the memory of it would dement and destroy everything else. So I love that definition of joy, first of all. I don't think that's going to be quite our definition today. Um, It's closer to what she thinks of as pleasures. But I do like that sense of the fact that extreme happiness is something that can be almost painful. You know, the experience of falling in love, for instance, it, it hurts as much as it delights. And the sharpness of joy, I think, is something that you have to talk about when you talk about joy, too. Yeah, I agree. Like a spike or it's a, it's it's by definition an unsustainable feeling, right? It's yes. like a, a thrill or a momentary brightness. Yes, definitely. But in terms of joy right now... I I think I mentioned during the previous minisode or one of our minisodes, we've been doing quite positive subjects lately. So this could have applied <laughs> in a lot of different situations. But while the quarantine has definitely been a depressor for me, it has also brought, speaking of sharp, these sharp moments of joy, especially in the early days of strict lockdown. And in terms of what brought me those moments, they mainly had something to do with the arrival of spring and really just noticing the natural world and being out on my runs and seeing ducklings or seeing a plant that had come up or noticing a shift in the weather or the way that the clouds were arranged in the sky and just feeling completely overwhelmed. And and that feeling, I think that feeling of sort of smallness, which is often for me what I associate with joy, you know, seeing my place in the world and feeling extremely grateful to be noticing the beauty of it and I guess the other thing that brings me joy and has brought me joy under this lockdown is connections with people and of course we've talked about how those have been severely limited but in those moments when I really do connect with someone like have a wonderful phone conversation with them or you know even with my partner just have a really wonderful evening inside that has also been that moment when I feel that the world is bigger than myself. Sorry, I'm get, I'm already getting quite. <laughs> I love it. Dippy dippy with this. No, I, I really feel it. I think I'm someone who feels a lot of joy and delights in joy. Can you delay in joy? I don't know. Um, well, but I've tr- I've tried to find it. Every yeah, day. I think you can delight in joy because I think that the the quote you read from Zadie Smith suggests that she doesn't delight in joy. Right? Like, I love that essay and I love how she breaks 
the definition down in such a rigorous and thoughtful way. I'm also not sure I agree with everything in her definition because I think I relate to joy in a very different way from her. And it's not that the kind of intensity of the way she experiences it is different than the intensity of how I understand my experience of joy. But I love remembering joy. I love it. Remembering joy brings me more joy, even when that joy is tainted by the painful edge that she describes. I still find going back to those feelings and those moments of real kind of emotional ecstasy, I think, um, they can kind of regenerate for me. I mean, maybe what I'm talking about is euphoric recall. And, you know, I, I guess That's you very can... very words worth the interview. Oh, well, I mean... That was the whole thing. Who was that was guy? Like the... <laughs> <laughs> the memory was more important than the experience. I, mean, I disagree with that too, but I think, I think they are of, <laughs> of equal import. <laughs> I might be wrong. I'm going to have a lot of William Wordsworth scholars. Like... <laughs> mailing me. <laughs> That's right. You know, you know where to find her. <laughs> but yeah, I think that really, I think that, that I am someone who um, takes great pleasure in, my memory is shaky. My memory is not linear and not very, it doesn't make much sense to me a lot of the time. But one of the things it's very good at is finding pleasure in itself. And I get, uh, I get joy from the experience of finding a memory in the miasma of my very cluttered mind and re-experiencing it and reliving it um and I feel like it can create ripples in the present and it can help me search for kind of the same kind of connection again and and so I I do quite fundamentally disagree with with the way that Zadie Smith describes it and I think it's fascinating that how she relates to joy is in such a different way for me and that's one of the things that brings me joy (laughs) in talking about emotions because we talk about emotions in quite a universal way a lot of the time, but the reality is we actually relate to emotions very differently person to person. And it is really fascinating to hear someone who's able to think in such a um, kind of literate way about their feelings describe something that is ultimately incredibly different because I'm like, wow, you know, what it what is it like to be inside Sadie Smith's skin, for example, was well, pretty different from what it's like to be inside my skin for all kinds of reasons. But yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I love to feel joy. I seek it out sometimes when it's really not going to be there, which is painful to me. But I can feel like uh, I'm driven by a pleasure-seeking nature, which means I, I think in my experience of being a pleasure seeker, I'm frequently disappointed because I would like to feel good all the time. And obviously that ain't possible. I mean, as for what's bringing me joy right now in this moment, I had a few days away from screens and social media and everything recently. And it was absolutely crucial for my mental well-being, And it made me think, and I know that this is not a new thought, but it made me think about how the pace of modern life can really rob us of opportunities to feel joy. And listening to you describing how you felt in early lockdown, I think is such testament to that, that I'm aware that there's also a way of framing this that is a kind of neoconservatism, which I'm really wary of. However, there was something in that experience of very tightly boundaried life that took away from us a lot of the external noise. And I think for a lot of people reconnected them to those very simple, pure experiences of joy that like you say, are to do with the world around us and understanding our place in it. Yeah. um, This is maybe a bit of a tangent, but I was recently rereading Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. And I think she would argue 
that what you've just said is true, but it's very much not a neoconservative way of thinking. It's a way of reclaiming our own time and space in a world that's designed to make us feel that we have to be productive and keep our eyes on screens. And actually the re-engagement with nature in things like bird watching is actually a really radical act. Oh, I completely agree. But I mean that when it comes to us under the guise of lockdown, it's being co-opted by a neoconservatism that makes me really uncomfortable. Like mm, when it's yeah. government mandated, it feels like a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I completely agree. And I haven't, I have not yet read that book and I'm desperate to, because I think I'm going to vibe with it. You know, the other thing was though, that this morning I, I felt a new kind of joy. And I think this is what is, coming up for a lot of us in these really extraordinary, unprecedented times. I mean, that word is bandied around constantly right now, but it's still true. <laughs> We're finding new new experiences of old emotions. And this morning I had a kind of joy that was much more heartbreak than joy, but it was so profoundly also joy, which was, I was finally allowed to visit my dad in his nursing home and I haven't seen him for almost five months. And his Alzheimer's has advanced a lot and he now is nonverbal, which has meant that the communication we've relied on on the phone and everything is now, I mean, we just sort of heavy breathing and it's, it's hard. Um, and I was there and we weren't allowed to touch and we were three meters apart and there was a screen between us. Um, and I had my mask on and my gloves. And so everything about this kind of setup was not at all joyful. It was clinical and weird. And the nursing home were doing the very best they could to make it possible and, and not devastating. But naturally, it was very difficult. And then at the same time, there was this incredible joy. And there was joy in him and there was joy in me. And in our limited ways of expressing it, we shared in something so powerful and something that was actually so new. It was new for both of us. And yeah, it, I mean, I'm emotional now, obviously, how could I not be? But it was, it was happy, sad, and it was future past. It was like all tenses and times collapsed and, it, and we were just in this very powerful moment. And I guess actually, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking maybe that was a true experience of Sadie Smith's version of joy because it was a strange admixture of terror, pain and delight. It, it really, really was you know, in the interest of like being a, a human being who lives the full depth of experience, I wouldn't change it for the world, even though I obviously wish I could hug my father, you know? Wow, that sounds really powerful and difficult and also wonderful. And I'm really glad you got to see him. I'm really sorry that you couldn't touch each other. It makes me think too about your response um, to me when I was talking about joy about the time limit. Um, that we can't, we can, we only have so much time that we can experience these intense emotional mixtures. And I think even if joy isn't as tinged with sadness as maybe what Zadie thinks or what you just experienced, it is overwhelming in some way. You know, it it takes you over, and um, and you can't live in a constant state of joy, can you? No, I I mean I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> because the thing about joy is that it is the it's the antithesis of mundane and you know how I feel about mundanity <laughs> but yeah it was a powerful moment and I um and I will never forget it so 
we've just talked a lot about like real life experiences, but what about books? Do you think that uh, books can be joyful or can reading be joyful? Yes. Well, it's important that we work in books. This <laughs> See, I was trying. That was me. I reached for the crowbar this time just to make you happy, baby. <laughs> Thank you. No, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a worthwhile question to ask on this literary podcast. And my knee jerk response for some reason was no, you know, I don't mm. think of the experience of reading as necessarily joyful. I get a lot of emotional pleasure out of it in many ways, but I think of books as maybe more of a reflection on the idea of joy rather than a pure experience of joy. Well, you, you, you always talk about how cerebral your experience of reading is. And I think this is going to be where our, the way we relate to reading, the difference in the way we relate to reading is really going to show mm-hmm. up again. Um, and I always think it's, I always want to hear you talk more about it because it's always so interesting to me because I feel joy regularly when I read um, and also just in the experience of reading, I think because as I just said about mundanity, like I'm always looking for ways to escape reality and reading offers me that. And I, I can experience a really profound joy just in that, <laughs> just in being given a window that I can jump through for a little bit. And then aside from that, there's all the other joys, like the joy in language, the joy. I feel very a very specific and pure kind of joy when I encounter a new idea that shows me a new way of looking at something it's like a rush of blood to the head and it's like mm-hmm. a, you know palm sweaty like churning in my stomach like having a crush you know I think I have crushes on words basically <laughs> so I do yeah I do think of reading as intensely joyful and I think that's also why I feel such a huge sense of disappointment when it doesn't deliver because I can come to it with such expectation and I think that is something that can be really hampering if you're someone who's constantly looking for joy maybe looking a bit too hard for joy and the expectation that you place on every experience can actually maybe hinder you from feeling it you know what I mean it's kind of a complex balance yeah although listening to you say that maybe I do feel joy in reading because I I know exactly what you mean by that feeling of when a writer manages to say something that you know to be true about the world but you had never fully put it into words and when somebody can use language to elucidate that there's there's really nothing better yeah it is a a moment of extreme I mean maybe I always thought about it as kind of understanding but that can be a certain kind of joy yeah um I was also wondering if there's such thing as joyful writing because we're we're thinking about our responses to writing but are there certain writers that are more joyful than others I did you listen to the this American Life episode that was hosted by Bim Adewamni about she called it the book of delights and actually she mentioned the poetry of Ross Gay who wrote a book of the same name which is all about finding delight in life and in language and things like that and that struck me as very joyful. It was, it was a wonderful episode. And he, I've not read his book yet, but he sounds like a really like wonderful, wonderful human being. I felt very glad that he was on the planet. Can you think of any other writers that write joyfully? I was thinking maybe of Essie Adujan, who we interviewed. Um, Just Washington Black, like feels like a very joyful book, uh, even though of course it's about somebody escaping slavery and and the trauma of slavery, but it's also like adventurous and, open and exploratory and sort of full of 
delight in the world and, yeah. and the riches that the world has to offer. I'd be, yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, I think I look, I look to poetry for joy most regularly in some ways, like intentionally, because there can be a very pure joy in language, right? And that's something that poets are really, really trading in. Like Frank O'Hara's poetry brings me so much joy because his joie de vivre is like in every in every piece he writes. And I think that there's the something. Yeah. 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 And I think there's something so um he makes his emotional landscape so accessible. And that is a way of sharing joy because you feel I feel like I know him, you know? I feel like he's a close friend in some ways. Um, I also find Dylan Thomas's writing so joyful because he's so playful. Like the magic that he kind of weaves with language is delightful, really, truly delightful. I haven't read her whole book yet, but Nina Mingya Powells writes really beautifully about color in her poetry and the exactitude and emotional connection that she kind of describes in these vignettes even if the whole poem isn't necessarily to do with joy, there are moments of that real like bright spike of joy in hearing someone describe a color in a new way, you know, and in a way that um, attaches it to its cultural context or its personal context. So that I've, I've recently, that's some writing that's crossed my path. People have been sharing some of her poems on Twitter and they've, every time I found them really compelling and, and joyful and bright. I think there's something about this idea of joy as something bright and light, isn't there? Like a hot power. But I also actually was thinking of that Mary Oliver poem, Don't Hesitate, which opens with the lines, if you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate, give into it. And ends with the line, joy is not made to be a crumb. And there's something so perfect about that because I think that sometimes we do hesitate we feel the 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 kind of arrival of joy or the onset of joy and we live frankly in a puritanical culture that you know suggests that joy is a waste of time or that joy is antithetical to productivity and therefore something that we should push away when it comes knocking and i think that she really gets at that in that it's a very short prose poem but when yeah there's i i think of it often actually and of course it's not meant to be a crumb it's meant to be a whole fucking cake yeah I think it's very telling that Mary Oliver wrote about joy because I think, you know, this came up when we were talking about hope too. I think it, it, it relates to things like intimacy and hope and joy, which get not a bad rap in our society, but are, I, I think are seen as slightly embarrassing in the same way that Mary Oliver's poetry is seen as slightly embarrassing. Yeah. Like maybe a little feminine, overly emotive, loved by you know, brides at weddings. But I mean, I, th I think her poetry is pure. It's pure feeling. Yeah. And there's a reason why it connects with so many people, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, and the idea that just because something has wide appeal, it's therefore somehow less refined or less brilliant is absolute bullshit. Um, and very pervasive, sadly, uh, you know, that kind of literary snobbery is oh, I'm so over it. Also, because it's so, it's so folded in with patriarchy misogyny you know like you said like overly feminine as a as a really negative damning thing and actually sometimes the most powerful way to put something is the simplest you know it doesn't have to always be fancy footwork and don't get me wrong I love the fancy footwork as well but like why can't we love it all you know why would we cut ourselves off from the poems of Mary Oliver just because 
some people find them a bit mawkish. Yeah, we wouldn't. No, we wouldn't. Not here. (laughs) (laughs) Not here. I do feel very lucky. I think in general, life just brings me a lot of joy. I mean, maybe this is true of everyone. I don't know. I think it can be a practice as well. I think it can be um, generative within oneself. And I think that it's something that you can cultivate a bit like a muscle, Mm. you know, a readiness to see joy and to find it and experience it. Though I think it's also really important to say that that isn't to say that if you haven't felt joy for a long time, it's your fault or because you haven't been trying hard enough. And I think that, um, yeah, it's a flip side of that kind of way of framing something can be that it sounds like uh, there's blame if you haven't. And again, it becomes that sort of neoliberal weight on the individual to create their own conditions for joy, which in reality, you know, no, I think depression, grief, illness, all of these things can make joy feel impossible. And through lockdown, I reached levels of real despair where joy was much harder to come by than before. And sometimes it was just completely beyond my reach. And that was very painful because it's something that normally I am able to find in even the smallest thing, you know? But yeah, there were days when it it wasn't possible. But I tried my hardest to remember that that too would pass and that the ability to experience it was still within me and that the fact I couldn't was to do with the conditions around me not uh like the joy machine inside me was broken if that makes sense Mm. and it has my ability to feel it has returned as the heaviness has lifted in some ways and it's intensified in others but that's the thing I think we're always built of a we're a kind of a, a machine of moving parts aren't we and we're responding to external experiences we have our inner life that can be steady or unsteady depending on what else is going on and the the ability to remain as flexible as possible within oneself holding all of this in mind at the same time is fucking hard but like it's I think I think that also helps so yes I think that there is such a thing as being like a, a person with a predisposition towards feeling joy but I also think it's something that we can help each other with you know when times there'll be times when you your ability to feel it or your readiness to feel it is greater than the person next to you and and if you can turn and help them then the world would be a better place which takes me to actually another point I think in order to really embrace joy and I I think that point you made earlier was so important that if we can't feel joy in a particular moment or even in a particular period in our lives, it's, it's very much not our fault. But I think it, the ability to feel joy also has something to do with a kind of earnestness. Like you, you have to be uncynical about feelings and you have to be willing to sound like, you know, someone at 2am in a college dorm room, <laughs> <laughs> like saying how beautiful stars are. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's just an earnest person's opinion, but I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you think the cynical people don't feel joy? No, I, I think they feel joy I, in their cynicism. Maybe, yeah. Mm. This is what I mean, right? The quality of it is yeah. different yeah, for yeah, every yeah. person. Yeah, I'm with you though. Okay, I, maybe I my it. joy is just extremely earnest. Yeah, but I just joy is partially about letting go, isn't it? Like letting yes. go of the things in your mind that are stopping you from feeling things and regulating you and asking you why you should be doing a certain thing or 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 why you aren't doing a certain thing yeah well I think it you have to there is as you say there's a letting go and and there's like a a need to feel allowed to fall into the feeling 
it has to be trust maybe or maybe there's mm. trust as an element of it as in trusting the moment that you can allow yourself to be overwhelmed and I do think that overwhelm the sense of being overwhelmed is not a thing that a lot of people I mean a lot of people don't enjoy that feeling which is potentially what makes it complicated in the way that Zadie Smith was writing about you know that that's the the double edge of that complication for her um, yeah, and I think I'm like that in many ways I don't like being outside of my own head it makes me profoundly uncomfortable Oh man, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd l- I'd like to be more like you. Uh, I'd like to be more like you. So there we go. Well, we're bringing each other joy. That's right. But literally, right now, I wish everyone could see on this like tiny little <laughs> iPhone, grinning like grinning. a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. That's it. You spread it. Ah, it's the best. I do think that I wish we could think more communally about the, about ways of creating joy for one another as a culture. And it, it really feels like, I don't know, to speak in the language of the oppressor for a moment, but it feels like a massive fucking oversight from the overlords of capitalist enterprises because some people really do work better when they're happy. So imagine a happy, healthy, satisfied workforce with good life work-life balance. <sighs> I don't know. It makes me really sad that the world we've built is one of such inequality and violence because we did this. You know, like we could have made anything and we made this. Yes. Not very joyful no, to, <laughs> to reach to. But okay, so I have one more question for you. Yeah. Is joy a motivating factor in how you live your life? Do you know, I don't know if I've thought about it very much. I would like to think the answer is yes. I also think that maybe other factors have influenced my decisions. Things like stability the quest to live a moral and fulfilling life, ambition, if I'm being very honest. I'd like to think some of those choices create the circumstances for joy. You know, as discussed, I I see joy as something that cannot be a state that one lives in forever, but rather something that punctuates a life. And so maybe in a very boring way, I set my life up to, to create the circumstances for moments of joy as often as possible I don't think that's boring (laughs) (laughs) John tells me all the time how boundaries are crucial for creativity to flourish for example Um, and I think I think you're right that you know there's a certain amount of legwork that one might need to do in order to create the conditions to safely experience joy maybe that's part of what you're saying I don't know I mean I think I think that as we always say when we talk about pleasure and things in this arena of human experience, that there can be such a a kind of moral tinge to the way that it's discussed. And I think that the idea of a life that is just devoted to seeking pleasure is one that's kind of very much looked down on because I think it's often thought about in quite a straightforward way. But actually, if you know that in order to experience joy, you need to reach a certain level of fulfillment of your ambition. You need a certain amount of stability. You want to be um, going to sleep at at night feeling that you have kind of acquitted yourself well morally throughout the day. Then you are structuring a life that will bring pleasure. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think you can break those things down. And I think you're meeting the brief, you know? Like in my own life, I walk the tightrope between wanting to sink into only pleasure and then denying myself all pleasure 
because I'm scared that if I have a little, I'll only want more and more and more. And then God knows where that ends up, you know, in my past experience, not anywhere particularly good. And moderation is not an attribute that I have been blessed with. So it's one that I have to work at every day. But when I work at it, I working at that moderation doesn't rob me of joy. In fact, it kind of connects me to a more uh, sustainable way to experience it. And maybe that in itself is closer to joy than the kind of demented pursuit of alterity. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think so. But maybe I would think that because I've structured my life in that way. I mean, again, what I would like to take from you is just a, a bit more looseness of abandonment. I think that's so essential. Yeah, I think it is essential, but I think that it's, well, we can be guides for one another, you know? And actually, when I look at the most meaningful relationships in my life, they're all with people now, which is different from when I was younger and still drinking and 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 living in, in kind of a different part of my identity, I suppose. But when I look at the relationships that are the most significant now, they tend to be with people who have a much more balanced experience of the world, because I think I you know, I need that and I need uh, teaching. I need to learn and I need to to copy and follow. And I think a lot of those people would say, you know, that the yin is balanced by the yang of, of my different energy. And I think we do that a lot in relationships, you know, and I think... Would, would you say we have a significant relationship? Girl, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one okay. of the top ones. Come I'm on. I'm you say it. <laughs> Well, that's lucky. That would have been very embarrassing <laughs> if you were like, no, no, you don't make the top 10. <laughs> no, yin and, yin and yang. Carrie and Octavia. Sorry, this is... <laughs> I think people want to listen to this. I, do you know what? By this point, I have absolutely no idea. And everyone, if you are still listening, if you haven't turned off in absolute disgust, thank you for being here and listening to us. <laughs> experience joy together and I hope that you are joining us in this experience of joy. Anyway, we are now going to skip ahead into some cultural recommendations before we say goodbye to you for the summer. But first, here's a little music and we will be back shortly. So Carrie and I are back to talk to you about some cultural stuff that we have enjoyed lately that has brought us joy, maybe, maybe not, maybe a heady mix of all kinds of emotions. Um, I know the first thing we want to talk about definitely fits that bill, uh, which is I May Destroy You, Michaela Cole's extraordinary TV show that's been on the BBC, but I think it's on Netflix as well now. Is it? No, it's on HBO in the States. Oh, HBO. Okay, there we go. That's just if you're listening from outside of the UK, that's where you can find it. Look for HBO. Oh, my God. I mean, (laughs) it destroyed me. Did it destroy you? It destroyed me. It destroyed me. I mean, it was amazing all the way through, but I thought, and I don't want to do any spoilers. I just want to say that the last episode actually did destroy me. And I've never seen a television show take something like trauma and sexual assault and somehow 
flip it inside out and like chop it up and put it back together and make something whole and astonishing and different and surprising. It was just like, it was the experience of just wanting to understand how somebody's brain worked because it did something that I didn't expect, but found cathartic and upsetting and joyful. Yeah, I thought it was amazing. That's what's incredible about that show, that every time she takes you down an emotional path, she flips it and shows you the other potential side. And by doing that, I think she makes space for every possible experience of the world in a way. It's so compassionate and challenging too but in in all the right ways I think I just felt like watching it I was like this is elevating us this is elevating what we can demand of our culture and it can't be tied up in a neat bow it can't be put into a particular genre and thank fucking god (laughs) you know I just yeah I don't want to do any spoilers either and I feel like it really is the kind of show that you need to experience for yourself and you'll have your own emotional relationship to it but it is exquisite there's also a really fabulous profile um, in Vulture, which was written by Alex Jung, um, and it is incredible. He, he's a phenomenal writer anyway, but just um, getting into, I mean, watching I May Destroy You, you're already inside Michaela Cole's brain to a certain extent, but getting even further in and, and hearing about her experiences and what shaped her as an artist um, and the battle she had to retain creative control over her projects. And thank God she managed it. But anyway, yeah, it's just extraordinary. I, I haven't seen Chewing Gum and I'm really looking forward to going back to watch it, which was her first series. Which is on Netflix. Which is on Netflix. That's what I'm thinking yes. of. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah. No, I haven't. Okay. Um, well, maybe we can watch that over our summer break as, as yeah. some happy homework. Also, please make your straight men watch it because everyone okay. I saw talking about it on Twitter and and everyone I've sort of had conversations about it with has been women straight and gay um, and queer and men who are queer, but I really have barely seen any straight men engaging with it. And I think it it's very important. It's a show for everyone. It's not just a show for women and queer people. So agreed. Yeah. Anyway, what what else, my love? What next for you? One film that I enjoyed recently was to five bloods which is written and directed by spike lee have you seen it no i've seen the poster and have thought how much i want to watch it though really recommend it it's the story of four black vietnam vets who go back years later to the place where their friend was killed in the jungle it is a very long and shaggy movie it's about like five movies in one it's a buddy comedy and a treasure hunt and a war movie and like this profound meditation on the black experience in America. And it does switch between modes in this kind of uh, surprising and very quick way. But well, first of all, I have a lot of time for works of art that are big and shaggy and ambitious in this way. And, and so I was sort of, you know, it's not a perfectly contained tight thing but I sort of feel like it's all the better for it and that is kind of Spike Lee's thing anyway so you you go into it expecting it and knowing it it's a very powerful answer to all the other famous Vietnam movies that don't really feature many black characters or are sort of side characters but of course um there were many more like the percentage of black men in Vietnam was much 
higher compared to the black population than the white population. So there were tons of black vets and they just haven't really been, their stories haven't been told in popular culture. But also it's just, it's a delight to watch. It's like a history lesson. Spike Lee does that thing of, you know, having people say things from history and then he throws up photographs onto the screen. You know, it's really, it's really interactive. But also, I mean, the, the acting is just great and the acting between all the characters, but especially Delroy Lindo as Paul is, I think, the best performance I've seen all year in anything I've watched. It's, okay. it's just incredible. And especially at the end, he has kind of th- this these long moments where he speaks to the camera that are just transfixing. Um, and it's worth watching just for those. So, yeah, I'd, I'd really recommend it. It's long. So, you know, get your popcorn. <laughs> settle in. <laughs> get your popcorn. But I, yeah, I, it's it's really great I want to see it yeah I really do it's on Netflix it's on Netflix great thank god for Netflix what's your next recommendation well actually my next recommendation is also on Netflix who do not sponsor this podcast by the way just uh... (laughs) (laughs) very much not I mean they really don't but you know what if they have the money and they want to chuck it away we wouldn't say no (laughs) um anyway mine is a very different kind of recommendation from uh Spike Lee it is a series called Snowpiercer and let me tell you it's complete trash but it is really really enjoyable trash I found I mean, bizarrely, because it's not even very satisfying half the time. It's kind of like under budget. It's a bit flabby. There's all kinds of stuff that doesn't quite hang together. And yet I watched all 12 or whatever they are episodes of it. Um, I mean, I think partly because I have a massive crush on David Diggs, who plays the lead. And Jennifer Connelly's in it playing a, a great kind of morally ambiguous Wizard of Oz character. And she's she's a good kind of, is she or isn't she a villain actor I think and I think also probably the fact it wasn't released in one co had something to do with it because we couldn't binge watch it and so that every week there was this anticipation about when was the next one going to be out and and my partner and I were watching it in the middle of you know thick lockdown so distractions were few um but yeah it's really camp I mean really really camp in the kind of I think real Susan Sontag definition of the word and it's taken from the um, Bong Joon-ho film which I also really loved and which is in itself taken from a comic book and so the premise is completely bonkers it's a train the world has has ended there's been some kind of catastrophic event and the world is essentially frozen and the only people who survive are on this train that goes round and round the planet because if it drops below a certain speed it will freeze up and everyone on it will die so you're already in this like world of of catastrophe but what's brilliant because it's from the Bong Joon-ho is that there is a social commentary about class and um, resources and the finite resources etc but this trashy tv show basically takes all of that and and runs with it and that's still there but also essentially makes it kind of like a sexy Columbo on a train because David Diggs plays the last ever detective alive at the end of the world and there are some murders on this train and so it's kind of Similarly to the Spike Lee, it's maybe like eight different genres in one go. I think unsimilarly, it's not that deft in how it slides between them. And there are moments where you're like, are you fucking serious? And there are moments where everyone on screen seems to completely give up and not really give a fuck. But that in itself is really quite compelling. So yeah, if you want to just like total mad escapist experience where you can also get the pleasure of being quite like arch and critical about it while you're watching it it's quite fun 
I don't think I'm going to watch it. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't think you're going to watch it either. <laughs> I guess that one wasn't really for you, darling. That's no, for people no. whose, uh, there are whose other taste is allowed to be a bit baggier than, than yours. I have very baggy taste. Thank you very much. <laughs> I like trash just like the next gentleman. I know, that's true. No, don't. But mean. no, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like my kind of It's not your bag, flavor of bag. trash. Trash trash bag? Trash bag, yeah. Your trash yeah. bag is a different flavor. Tell yeah, me, what's next? I know that we've endorsed Esther Perel many times before on the show, but I'd really like to endorse the new season of Where Should We Begin? Seconded. Which is her podcast. Yeah. Um, it's such a fascinating look into the therapeutic process for couples. There's definitely a sense of nosy fascination about how other couples live and interact. And like, I do feel like a bit of a voyeur listening to these episodes, but I just find it so helpful to think about me, to think about my relationships, to see how other humans tackle problems and get out of cycles, which is really like part of her whole philosophy is like getting out of these cycles that repeat themselves. But I also just love the way, and it's really come through in this season for me, that Esther makes people step back and look at the stories that they tell about themselves and about their relationships and manages to convey this incredibly empathetic position that this storytelling is both a necessary part of being human. We can't really get away from it, but also it can really keep us back from changing or growing and just being able to see these stories and kind of get inside them and understand where they come from and understand what it takes to change the story is such a big part of, of growing and changing as humans. And I, yeah, it's, I've, I've loved listening to it. Me too. I also love the way you described it just then. Because you're right, you've hit the nail on the head. It's really, yeah, it's so instructive in so many ways. What's your last recommendation? My last one is also a podcast, actually, but it's a specific episode. So the Adam Buxton podcast, episode number 126 with Joe Cornish. And it's interesting to be recommending this because I was a huge fan of the Adam and Joe show growing up. They had a, a, a kind of they're like a comedy duo, basically, if you haven't come across them. And they're a bit older than me. So, you know, anyone younger than me is probably not that in interested, but anyone of my generation, they were on TV, they were on the radio, they had an XFM show. Anyway, they had a podcast as well. And sadly, like all things from back in the day, if you listen back to it now, unfortunately, you'll hear some of the misogyny, transphobia and homophobia that was par for the course in comedy in the 90s and the early 2000s. So, you know, that's the background. Um, but anyway, when Adam started his podcast on his own, I used to listen pretty regularly, but over time found myself cringing a bit more and more at how increasingly out of touch he seemed to be. And I think that is something that just happens as you age. <laughs> and if you are not in contact with people younger than you and not listening to the direction the world is moving in, you're going to find yourself on a hill somewhere. And that's sort of how he seemed, the direction he seemed to be going in. So I stopped listening. But the other day I was on a long walk across town avoiding public transport and there was a new episode. So I tuned in and it was actually really, really beautiful radio. Um, he was back in the studio with Joe and Adam was talking about his mother's recent and sudden death. And it was not what I expected. It's not what you would expect from the tone of his, the media that he makes. Um, and it was just so generous and powerful for him to share it in that way, talking to this incredibly old friend 
about it. And it really reaffirmed to me the power of true, honest radio and the really kind of powerful thing that happens when a person lets you into their private emotional landscape and is honest about what's going on and doesn't edit out the emotion in their voice and allows you even to see how difficult it might be for them to be emotional in that moment you know just the layers and layers of humanity it's something that obviously fiction does so beautifully in the right hands but when it's coming from a cultural figure that you have known for a really long time it has an added resonance. And and of course, because of where things are in my own life with my own father, it was very, very profound. But I do think it would be a meaningful listen for anyone. And I, yeah, really recommend it. He's a good man, Adam. That sounds wonderful. I've never listened to the podcast. No, it's really not something that I imagine exported to the United States. <laughs> I don't know how you'd feel about it. His His sense of humor can be very puerile. Um, he makes all these silly songs. I find them really I'm funny. Puerile. So who who do you think I am? I'm a baggy puerile. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go listen to the Adam Buxton podcast, and we'll talk okay. about it next time. And I'll okay. see how you find his songs about. I mean, there's lots of. I think there's songs about poo. There's which I'm not a huge fan of. I have to say, anyone who knows me knows that scatological humor is very much not my jam, because actually, I can be a bit uptight about it, but. Uh, there are other songs that really make me laugh that he makes. Okay, yeah, I, I can get on board with. That. I would like to hear your your thoughts actually, because I do wonder if there's. I do wonder how much of it is just because I grew up listening to them, and we shared a lot of cultural references. They went to, you know, we all went to London private schools and all that kind of nonsense. And I wonder how much of it is that part of that language, you know, when you share a kind of cultural context. I shall report back for good or for bad. All right, my darling. Well, I think that that's it. I think we've come to the end of the minisode and all that's left to be said really is that you bring me an enormous amount of joy continually and we will be back in at the very end of August with a show with Ely Williams, which we're really excited about, talking about her first novel, A Liar's Dictionary. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. And actually, that's one more thing that we should add. Some of you have been sending us really beautiful emails lately, and they have brought us both an enormous amount of joy. And replies are coming soon. Um, but just really profoundly, thank you. Thank you. We'll be back at the end of the summer. And until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt. And this is Literary Friction. <laughs> Is that really what you think I sound like? Literary friction. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it.